0: Turn with me, if you will, back to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. This morning we'll look at uh, 12 verse 10 through 13 verse 4. Twelve ten to 13, 4. There's an idea floating around. That if a person will simply make a decision to trust Jesus, his or her problems and struggles will be over. That one simple act of faith and you will enter eternal, peaceful bliss. Well, yes and no. Yes, we're called to trust in Jesus. There's absolutely no other hope of forgiveness and eternal life. And yes, he is the Prince of Peace, and you will never know anything like lasting peace apart from Jesus. But no, the life of faith is not a bed of roses. Last week we were introduced to Abram, a great man of faith, with bold confidence in God. He left his homeland his family, to go wherever God would send him. Now we might expect that when he finally arrives at his destination, the land where the Lord sent him, that life would be wonderful and peaceful and prosperous. I mean, here was a man at great cost in the center of God's will. But in fact, the next few chapters of Genesis now will recount for us one test after another, after another, that Abram endured once he obeyed and went for God's sent. Him. And some of those tests, he will fail. But folks, this is what the life of faith looks like. It's not an hour of decision. It's a lifetime of learning. It's a seemingly endless string of trials. It's often an exercise in failure and restoration. Life is not a lark for the disciple of Jesus. God calls it a school of learning. He calls it a a battle to be waged. He calls it a discipline not to be despised. Ah, but this is the life, the way of life. And through Abram, God shows us how to live it, how to walk by faith. Well, let me read the text, picking up the story with verse 10, and we'll read down to 13, 4, 12, 10. Now, there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while, because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, Now, I I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace, he treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants, and maid servants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. "What have you done to me?" he said. "Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took, so that I took her to be my wife?" Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. And so Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. And from the Negev he went to the, from place to place until he came to Bethel to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier, and where he first built an altar, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. This is an interesting story, perhaps it's familiar to you, perhaps it's not, but there are at least three things I think that we ought to learn, three exhortations that we ought to hear from this text as best I can understand it. The first is this, don't let fear destroy your faith. Don't let fear destroy your faith. Much of what we do in life is driven by fear of one kind or another. Sometimes that's good. We uh, don't cross traffic without looking for fear of being hit. We, we, perhaps we don't smoke for fear of getting cancer. We teach our children to be careful with things that are sharp and things that are hot for fear of them being injured. Some fear that drives us is, is good. Sometimes the fear that drives us is silly. We're bombarded with commercials about toothpaste and deodorants and every kind of personal hygiene product, all uh, appealing to our fear that people will find us offensive. We buy certain kinds of clothes, certain brand names, for fear that we might be out of step with our peers. That kind of fear is silly. Unbecoming a mature person. But there's sometimes when being driven by fear is neither good for us nor just silly. There are some times when being driven by fear is sinful. Those are the times when fear keeps us from faithfulness. When fear overwhelms our faith and causes us to disobey. Don't let that kind of fear destroy your faith. That's what we observe in Abram. As his faith is tested here, we find that he allows fear to, to divert his faith. There are actually two different events here, two times when his fear arises and, uh, and, and smothers his faith. The first is found in verse 1. Here's Abram is moving about in the land of Canaan, and, and, and a famine sets in. Uh, uh, a a severe famine, we're told. But he learns, probably from some other traveler, for there are certainly routes, travel routes that cross this land, he learns that down in Egypt there's food. And so he packs up and heads for Egypt, where the food is. Now now this appears to be a no-brainer. A man does what he has to do, right? Well, that would seem to be right if there were no context for this story. But if we look at the context, we see that just a few verses before, God has made very explicit promises to Abraham of how God would care for him and God would make him great and God would give this land which you finally arrived in to you and your descendants. I will bless you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless those who bless you. I will give your descendants this land. I will let you starve to death. (laughs) No. No, there is no possibility that God is going to allow Abram to starve to death because he has faithfully come to the place that God sent him. God went to great lengths to bring him here, all the way from the era of the Chaldees. God is not going to just abandon his promises because of a famine. God is in control of the famine. So why does Abram go to Egypt? Well, he's afraid. We'd all be afraid in the face of a famine. Afraid of being hungry, afraid of starving. You might say, well, what do you expect him to do? Trust God? Rest in God's promises? Every day? See, God's promises to Abram didn't just evaporate in the blazing sun causing the famine. But that's not what Abram did. He went down into Egypt. Actually, throughout the Bible, Egypt is often an example of the world. When trusting God gets hard, God's people were always tempted to go down into Egypt, to put their faith in Egypt, to find their resources in Egypt, to find their strength in Egypt. Isaiah writes about it later. He says Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses. Who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. Oh, the world is always there for God's people, isn't it? The world always has its ways. What do you mean you're trusting God? Hey, be self-sufficient. Hey, here are resources. Do your own thing. Provide for yourself. Determine your own destiny. The world is always there with its offer. But from Abram, we need to learn God's warning. Don't let fear destroy your faith. Cause you to turn away from the Lord to trust the things of this world. Oh, but that's only the first example. The second one's recorded in verses 11 to 13. Abraham's concerned once he abandons the land and heads into Egypt, he's concerned what's going to happen to him because of his wife Sarai. She's a beautiful woman. Now, if she's 60 years old, you might say, I don't think so. Well, she lived to be 127 years old. So she is just approaching middle age here. She's like a woman in her thirties, probably, to put it in our term. Perhaps a woman approaching forty. I know a lot of beautiful women who are 30s and 40. So Abram reasoned, since she's so attractive, here's what's likely to happen. The Egyptians are going to see my wife and they're going to say, you know, if we get rid of him, we can have his wife. He fears for his life. So Abram devises a plan. He will say, and he'll have his wife say, that she is his sister. Now that's true in a way, for the truth is she's his half-sister. But clearly that his intent is not to be precise and to mention that she's also his sister, not just his wife. Clearly the intent is to deceive, to save his own skin. Now we're not told how this deceit, how this little scheme would help Abram, but we can figure it out. Um, If someone wants to take Sarah as his wife, then he would have to negotiate with her brother. Of course, that puts Abraham in a position of being in control. He's calling the shots of who he wants to negotiate with and what the terms will be if someone wants to marry his sister. And those negotiations could go on for months, and the famine will probably be over by then. Or if not, we can just, in the middle of the negotiations, decide to move on and leave the suitors hanging. What a great plan! How clever! (laughs) But it's a plan driven by fear. A plan which has abandoned faith. Abram's goal is to protect his own life. Not even thinking about what this might mean for his wife. Is God not able to preserve Abram? Is God not able to preserve Sarah? After all, when God promised to give them descendants, that does involve Sarah too. (laughs) Is God not able to keep his promises? But in his fear for his life, Abraham ceased to trust God and began to work things out on his own. Ian Duguid puts it this way, Abraham's logic, natural as it was, was fatally flawed. He had forgotten that the God whom he served was greater than his problems. He thought that God needed some help in fulfilling his promise. He thought too much about the potential disasters that might befall him and too little about obeying God and letting the chips fall where they may. Oh dear folks, don't we do the same thing? Why do we suddenly become dishonest? Why do we suddenly rise up to protect our own interest with such a vengeance? Why don't we speak up for what's right when we know what's right? Why don't we go and do and say what we know that God commands? Why do the what-ifs of life seem to so easily win over God's I told you so's? Why? Because we're afraid. We're afraid of what might happen to us. We're, We're afraid of what people will think. We're afraid of the consequences of radical obedience. We let fear destroy our faith. Oh, and destroy it does. Consider the mess that Abram's faithless scheming got him into. You see, one thing he didn't count on in this grandiose scheme. Pharaoh didn't have to negotiate. Whoops. Pharaoh heard of Sarah's beauty, had her taken into his palace to be part of his harem. End of discussion. Dr. Alder is referring to this period of the 12th Egyptian dynasty of around 200 BC, 2000 BC, explains that, I quote, An ordinance has been discovered. Which specifies that the wife and children of any stranger who came to Egypt during this period in history could be taken over by the Pharaoh without any problem. Abraham didn't plan on that. Now, now don't misunderstand, the Pharaoh didn't just take Abram's wife, Sarah, like, like he was stealing her. This was a great honor. And in fact, Verse 16 indicates that Pharaoh took care of Abram royally. Abram now has a new status. He's like the Pharaoh's brother-in-law. And he suddenly is a rich man with flocks and herds and servants. Oh, but at what cost? What about Abram's own marriage? What, what about the promises God had made That involved Sarah, too. What about all they had been through already? Trusting the Lord and together leaving their homeland and leaving their family to go and obey the Lord. And suddenly what looked like such a perfect plan for self-preservation for Abram has cost him dearly. And there is no way out. How do you take on the Pharaoh? Sounds familiar, doesn't it? We set aside the narrow road of trusting God's word and doing what he says. We have a better plan, a plan that won't cost us so dearly as biblical discipleship seems to cost. We won't have to address our fears like the Lord would call us to address our fears. And so we scheme and manipulate the situation, trying to keep all the balls in the air at the same time, and suddenly they all collapse like a house of cards. Everything falls apart. It happens in our personal lives. It happens in our marriages. It happens with our children. It happens in our businesses. It happens in churches. Whenever we are driven by fear, refusing to live by faith, it is inevitable that the trouble The collapse is going to come, just like it did with Abraham. Oh, but this story isn't over, which brings us to the second exhortation we need to hear from this passage, and that's this. God guarantees his own promises. God guarantees his own promises. If you buy any kind of appliance these days, whether it's a a camera or a refrigerator, they're going to ask you if you want to buy a service contract that a lot of people buy them. We like to have guarantees that things are going to work. Nothing better than a bumper-to-bumper guarantee on a new car, even includes, includes road service. Man, how good can it get? We want to be secure. We want to know that this is going to work, this is going to be true. But who guarantees God's work? Who guarantees God's promises? If God says something, who backs it up? A few weeks ago, while pondering God's unchangeableness in our worship, we read a few verses at the end of Hebrews 6. There, in a strange-sounding section, this issue is addressed. People verify what they're saying by swearing by someone greater than themselves. But no one's greater than God. Who does he swear by? Hebrews 6 says, he confirms his promise with his own oath. So that God becomes both witnesses. That's as certain as anything can get. God said it and God guaranteed it. That's what we see played out in God's dealing with Abraham, that God guarantees his own promises. You see, in fear, Abraham may have forsaken all of God's promises. But folks, those promises were not dependent upon how faithful Abraham could be. They only depended on God. And so no matter what kind of mess Abraham has made, God has only just begun. No matter how hopeless it looks to Abraham, it's nothing in God's eyes for him to deal with. And deal with it he does. Plagues begin to come upon the house of Pharaoh. Plagues, diseases fill his household. Because of Abram's wife, Sarai. Gentlemen, I can't let this pass without a comment. God shows himself to be rather protective of his daughters here. He does not take lightly to anyone betraying one of his daughters. I say that because we have married his daughters. And sometimes felt that it was our place to do whatever we pleased because we were in charge. No. God goes to great lengths to avenge his daughter, Sarah. God literally drove Pharaoh to his knees to protect his precious Sarah. And Pharaoh got the message. We don't know how Pharaoh got the message. We don't know how he figured it out. Perhaps The plagues affected everyone, the sickness, the disease affected everyone, except Sarai. Oh, that would be a hint. (laughs) Or perhaps God communicated it to him in a dream. We don't know how God communicated, but we know that Pharaoh understood clearly what was going on. God has a way of making things clear, doesn't he? And so we have this most humiliating scene. The pagan Pharaoh. Calling Abram, the great man of God, the great man of faith, on the carpet. What have you done to me? He says to Abram. Oh, how far Abram has come. From God's promise that He would make him a blessing to the nations, Abraham has become the scourge of Egypt. See, that's what happens when you abandon faith and do it your own way. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife, Pharaoh thunders? And Abram is speechless, for he's without excuse. Here's your wife. Take her and get out of here, Pharaoh says commands his officials to take Abram and his wife and his possessions and escort them, deport them out of Egypt. You see, Abram may have been at his wit's end about what to do about the situation, but God wasn't. And God himself guarantees his promises. He was not about to allow the the ancestress of his people, the one who would bear the holy seed, to be part of Pharaoh's pagan harem. God was not about to let that happen. God was not about to allow the promise upon which his covenant rested to be compromised by Abram's Sinless, sinful folly and foolishness. God guarantees his own promises. But folks, if God was able to deliver Abram and Sarah from such a hopeless situation, with such a powerful hand, don't you think he could have taken care of him if he would have just obeyed him and trusted him in the first place? Of course he would have. And of shows Abraham's lack of faith for what it was, doesn't it? And may I suggest that this is the reason why God has preserved this certainly less than flattering account of this great man of faith, so that his people would learn to trust him. I think about Israel, to whom this was first given. Think of Israel's experience, it was, it was a lot like Sarah's in a way, wasn't it? The Hebrews had been held in Egypt by Pharaoh. Their situation was hopeless. There was no one to deliver. But God remembered his promises that he himself guaranteed, and he brought plagues on Pharaoh's household until Pharaoh literally drove the Israelites out of Egypt. Now when Moses is writing this account and writing down this, this these things, this history for, for God's people, Israel is out in the wilderness, and once again they're being challenged. Once again they're being tested. Will you obey God? Will you trust God and do what He says? Or will you run back to Egypt? God reminds them of his great faithfulness. Not just to them, but his faithfulness to keep his promises, a faithfulness he's been pursuing for for centuries, a faithfulness to Abram and Sarah way back there. God guarantees his own promises. You can trust me, he says to his people. And, and, and dear folks, this has everything to do with us too today. For the promises made to Abram are nothing less than the promise of salvation which comes in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the promised seed. Jesus is the one who is the source of blessing on all the nations. Jesus is the one whose name is exalted. Jesus is the one who is the heir of the whole earth. So all that Abram knew of God's promises, all of his salvation, just like yours and mine, is realized in the work of Jesus Christ. And those promises are guaranteed by God himself, no one else. See, the salvation which we know by faith in the gospel is not kind of dependent on us and kind of dependent on God. It's not a matter of God does his part and I do my part and together somehow we can get me saved. No. The gospel is that God saves. Just like he rescued Abraham and Sarah. God does everything. God chose us. God sent his son to die for us. God raised him from the dead. God sent His Spirit to search us out. God gave us new life when we were dead in our sins. God enabled us to believe in Him, and and God keeps us to the end. He does it all. God's promises are certain, for He Himself guarantees His Word. Does that mean I can just do what I please then? God will keep me from sinning because it's His business. Well, he may stop you. Sometimes he doesn't, though. What he always does is holds you accountable for whether you trust him and obey him. (laughs) He guarantees it. You will be held accountable. Oh, stand in awe of the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness. Abram was not faithful, but God was faithful. We can trust him and do what he says. Well, one more truth before we close. Let failure drive you back to the Lord. Let failure drive you back to the Lord. Times of failure are crucial times in life. We've all known failure. What do we do? Some people get bitter and resentful, angry at the world, angry at God. They're wounded inside. They're embarrassed at being caught in their folly. And often for the rest of their lives, people, out of some failure, become miserable cynics. Abram messed up pretty badly here. There's no denying. So will he go down that road? What's he going to do? Well, no, he doesn't. In the first verses of chapter 13, Abraham shows himself to still be a man of faith as he demonstrates what to do in times of failure. Look what Abraham does here in chapter 13, verses 1 to 4. The first thing he does is he retraces his steps. Abraham had come from Bethel, Through the land, down to the Negev, which is the south, the desert area. Through the Negev, on into Egypt. And now we read that Abraham came up out of Egypt, into the Negev, through the Negev, up into the land, through the land, various places, until he got back to Bethel. He retraced his steps. And what's so special about Bethel? word means house of God that gives us a hint that's the last place he sacrificed to the Lord and called upon God's name that was the last place of worship he returned and worshiped again calling upon the name of the Lord listen to Joyce Baldwin's comments Instinctively, Abram sensed a need for forgiveness, for cleansing and renewal. And he sought them at the place where he had already owned and worshipped the Lord. It is important to notice that he came back, that the way was open for him to come back, and that the Lord received him back, as the continuing story proves. You see, Abram let his failure drive him to retrace his steps and go back to the Lord. There he did the first things again. He started over, picked up where he had gone astray. Brothers and sisters, this is the road we need to travel when we have failed the Lord. He calls us to return to the gospel, the beginning point of our faith. Once again, we acknowledge our guilt. We acknowledge our desperate situation before the Lord. Once again, we look in faith to Jesus, our sin bearer. In the Apostle John's first letter, he calls us to return to this point of forgiveness and renewal. Let me read what he says. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. My dear dear children, I write this so that you will not sin. But if you do sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now what is that that John's calling us to? He's calling us... To claim the promises of the gospel all anew. For the gospel is all we have. It's all we need. When you fail so miserably, what do you do? Let your failure drive you back to the gospel. T- to uh, Confessing your sin and trusting the Savior. This is how we live. We see some of this in the apostle Peter's experience. Remember his great failure, how he denied the Lord out of fear in the courtyard as Jesus is on trial. And remember how Jesus restored him after his resurrection? What happened? Peter was back fishing. And Jesus arrived on the shores of Galilee. This is the same scene where Jesus called Peter, fishing. And Jesus is on the shore of Galilee. And there, the Lord Jesus renews Peter's call to follow him, to serve him. This is also the challenge laid before the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2. Jesus says, you've left your first love. You've you've gone astray, dear brothers and sisters. Now return and do the first things again. What were the first things for the church at Ephesus? Well, we read about it in Acts 19. It was radical repentance and trusting the Savior. Sincere faith in Jesus. So the Lord calls us back to that. Return to your first love. Do the first things. You see, folks, it matters how we deal with our failures. we're all going to have failures. These are Satan's devices to drive us far from God. For when you fail, you don't feel worthy. You're embarrassed. You may be wounded deeply. The last thing you want to do is to come back. You just want to run. Oh, but the failures are the Savior's call to come back, to retrace your steps back to where you went astray to radically repent and to trust the savior anew to again call upon the name of the lord like abram did the name of the lord by which we're saved for when you do you find that god is not done with you after all that his grace is even greater than your sin. you know that I like black gospel music. One album I have, there's a song that C.C. Winans sings about this return to the first things. Let me read you the words. I won't try to sing it to you. She sings, I'm so far from you, Lord. Still I hear you calling me. Those simple things that I once knew, the memories of drawing near. I must confess, Lord, I've been blessed, but yet my soul's not satisfied. Renew my faith, restore my joy, and dry my weeping eyes. Take me back. Let's go back to the place where I first received you. Take me back. I want to go back, dear Lord, where I first believed let your failures drive you back to Jesus nope Christian life is not a walk in the park folks that's what you've been told you've been misled but neither is it a hard bargain driven by a cruel taskmaster no that's not true either Christian life is a gracious covenant which God has made with his people. And in that covenant, he promises everything that we need, even the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And he guarantees the promises. They're certain because he's the one that set them. But he also demands that we turn away from our sin, turn away from our fears, and turn away from the... The the things that lead us astray, and trust Him. Trust Him. Learn to trust Him enough to do what He says. To that end, He's given us examples of faith. Examples like Abram, the great man of faith. What do we learn from him? Well, lots of things. But this morning, at least these three. Don't let fear destroy your faith. God guarantees His own promises. Let failure drive you back to the Lord. Amen. Shall we pray? Thank you, dear Lord, for this account that you've given us of the life of Abram. Lord, as we study this and think about it, even though he lived in such a completely different time and culture, and faced such completely different situations on on the outside, yet we see very quickly that, His struggles were just like ours. Lord, may we learn through faithfulness. May we learn, Lord, to not be driven by our fears. May we learn how great your promises really are. May we learn, Lord, how to get up and return to you when we fail so miserably. Thank you, Lord, for your word which instructs us even though we live so many hundreds of years later. Take these things and seal them to our heart. As we reflect on them, Lord, I pray that they would be like seed that grows in us and finds good soil and is nurtured and grows and produces a great crop of righteousness and faithfulness in us. We ask that in the strong name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.